At approximately 5.15 p.m. on May 10th in 1967, three boys ages 11, 13, and 14 explore a cave near their house in Mark Twain's hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. Brothers Billy Hogue, Joel Hogue, and friend Craig Dow are never seen again. It is now 52 years later. This is their story. I know I stand in line until you think you have the time to spend an evening with me. And if we go someplace to dance, I know that there's a chance you won't be leaving with me. Then afterwards we drop into a quiet little place and have a drink or two. And then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like I love you. Welcome back to Lost Boys of Hannibal, part two. William Karras and Schroeder's pants. Never planned. Never planned. <laughs> I'm not wearing pants, Chris. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be just a one-parter, but it ends up, uh, there's just a lot of information that we have to pass along. So and we're going to put it into two. We're going to put it into two. And we hope you guys are following along. Hope you're liking the bonus episodes. Uh, joining that discussion group on Facebook is a great way to help us solve this, this case or crime, right? As we begin to journey into this part here, you will see how William Carris is kind of falling apart. It gives you a little bit of evidence as to, man, everything that me and Chris just went over with Carris's report, it might not be all the things that we want it to be. Yeah. Maybe there's more information out there. One of the things that we do want to pull out is, and I, hopefully we're going to make this request, is to go ahead and get the report from uh, SSA on the 1965 incident, too. With Schroeder's pants. So that is something we are we are working on um, that we'll hopefully get a hold of so we can get some more information and pass that along to you as we go along. We'll probably put that on the discussion group once we get it. It's just as we start to begin to map out a documentary for The Lost Boys of Hannibal, one of the things that we do is start slating and it's important to to read what Karis's report is just to give the benefit of the doubt that we did go down every rabbit hole that we did see how his perspective was on it at the end of the day anytime you see anything from Karis, it just seems it just raises your eyebrows yep so with that we're gonna start this episode chris i'm gonna go right back into it you know it does happen chris no Karis is banned from the NSS due to various misrepresentations of the company, of caving, and unpaid bills. All right, this is very important. What year was that? This is 1966. <laughs> 1966. Mm-hmm. We know. We. I don't need to tell people that are listening what this podcast is about and what right. year it happened. No, I think it's actually on every cover. Yeah, <laughs> 1967. So now we have a gentleman who is who is the utmost, with my air quotes happening right now in the air, uh, utmost for foremost, I should say, cave expert in the country, who was just banned from. The National Speleological Society. Good job. Did I say it right? You oh, got it. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I kind of did. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so you have National Speleological Society that Karis is basically banned from. So what does Karis do? He forms his own. The Speleological Society of America. Okay. So that's interesting. 
at the same time, Karis had all this misrepresentation of NSS and he has all these unpaid bills. Another group, the Hondo Underground Rescue Team, also known as Hurt, who we've mentioned in mm-hmm. other episodes, had been formed in St. Louis, Missouri. Due to the attention-seeking behavior of the rescue organizations, many cavers thereafter branded all similar groups as mere glory seekers. It took about a decade for specialized rescue teams to rebuild the faith of the caving community. Let's recap. Hurt is our good buddy, Mr. Christensen's group. So now you have what you just read, Hurt says they're tired of this spectacle that is going on with the SSA. Is that right? SSA. Okay. We're going to go and create our own team. Now we get to May 11th, 1967, where Christensen is already here in Hannibal. And now you have the spectator coming. How How is that not... A, a clash of titans and a clash of okay you got christensen is like well you're just full of bs mm-hmm. and you got karis being like well you sob you're the one that says i'm i'm you got this clash how does this work well it becomes it's it becomes such another layer to add to the story yes we were on that radio show today and, and i told her on the radio station welcome to the rabbit hole because you're about to jump through another one because this gets really strange in the summer of 1967 the season before the boys go missing. Jim Crane and Dwayne Lyon were visiting the entrance pit and heard rocks falling above. After digging a few feet, they discovered that the cave was reopening itself. They shored up the entrance and covered it with some stones. On a return visit, they found the cave intact and not blown shut, as previously thought. A white memorial cross was painted on the cave wall in the easy passageway. There was no evidence of a collapse only a small cavity where the drill had broken through the ceiling. First thing that comes to mind is, didn't they say 200 sticks of dynamite? Yep. Well, that would do a pretty pretty fierce job. Which is, <laughs> Does that make you question, okay, is the 200 sticks of dynamite fake news? It's 100% fake news. Okay, so then... It's also something that they could have done with quarter sticks of dynamite in a, in a controlled area and made it sound, because they cleared the area, made it sound like they did all this stuff and they blew up rocks, and uh-huh. then they used those same rocks to cover the entrance. So do you think there was dynamite used at all? No. So then, it, it, not, not according to the evidence. There wasn't even evidence of this collapse that Karis talked about that he almost died in. So then the, you are going back that it makes more sense now when they said that they covered up the hole with wood, planks, exactly. and, and leaves. Now that actually works in the scenario. Yeah, oh yeah, that's the rubble from the dynamite. Yeah. And nobody who's the wiser that wants to be around a collapsing cave that was just struck with 200 sticks of diamonds is going to kind of go in there and figure out for themselves, was it not? But what the lions discover, you know, you had Jim Crane and Dwayne Lyon that were visiting this cave, the entrance pit, and they heard the rocks falling from above. But after digging a few feet, they discovered that the cave was reopening itself. And so this kind of lends itself to like, well, how was that even possible if you dynamited this? Well, it is, yeah, you're right. So it's not, but it does make more sense. So you're looking at about two and a half years since the incident occurred by now. Mm-hmm. So here's the deal. If they put, if they put two by eight boards mm-hmm. on top of this to cover it up, two by eight boards are not going to make it very long in the exposed in in the wilderness in the open so by then they're rotting and they're starting to fall apart so that scenario where the leaves rocks 
they there was wood, right? Am I correct in that mm-hmm. saying? So that makes sense. So yeah, it's going to get exposed now because it was covered up, right? And so the whole time here, and this is the summer of 1967. So this is after our boys go missing. Because hmm. remember, he's gone mm-hmm. in June, right? Okay, so now in the summer, this is probably July, right? Jim Crane and Dwayne Liner out there, and like, wait a minute, there was no evidence of a collapse. What was Karis even talking about? Let's go one more season over. Okay, so we're in the fall of 1967. Oh, 67, okay. Okay, same year. Jim Crane finally reached the bottom of the pit and found Mitchell's body. Hmm. It was doubled over. What? Yes. Huh? (laughs) Yeah. Remember, he was laying horizontal. Yeah. When they found him, the body was doubled over. What does that mean? Well, directly under the pit and the rope had been cut. (gasps) The rope was draped all around, and there was some rock debris on top of the body. It was as if the body had been allowed to fall from above, and no body bag was evident. Which Karis said that he did. Correct. So so take this a step further. So as Karis said, I'm cutting the rope, he just, or he cuts the rope. I mean, that's what we're saying. Right. Yeah. Woo. It appeared that Karis could have retrieved the body. Well, obviously, people are getting down. I still don't get this. Yeah. How are they not retrieving this body? When obviously Karis was able to go down there. Now these guys are able to go down mm-hmm. there. What is going? Okay, hold on. I-, I will step back. One of the things that did pop into my head was that is it possible that with you having all this water falling on him and he's probably frozen at this point in time. And I know this sounds very morbid and I apologize for that, but you're going to have stiffness as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. but you're also going to have literally where he's going to have water frozen on him at this point in time, where does it change the, I mean, his diameter and his size and makes it harder for him to get out of the small hole. You know, honestly, I don't know. And what Jim Crane finds is that, Clearly, Jim Crane keeps making visits to this, and he's unsettled by it because for him to go all the way down a 75-foot drop pit to find Mitchell's body by himself is not only courageous, but it's heroic. Hmm. In and of itself, he found that it appeared that Karis could have retrieved the body as well. They photographed the evidence and decided to keep it all in a secret in respect to the memory of Mitchell and to avoid any possible lawsuits because of Karis's affiliation with the government, Air Force Two, mm-hmm. and all these different things, a small community like this didn't want any more press. Hmm. Okay. And so Crane decides to keep it and sweeps it all under the rug, but they did have photographic evidence of it. Mm. Now, today, the truth was entrusted to a select few. The secret, however, caused the Dodgeville group to refer to the cave by different names, such as Buttonhole Cave or the Herkheimer System. It was believed that the cave might be extensive enough to connect to other pits in the area. Nearby sinkholes, such as Zerlo's Pants Cave. I guess that guy lost his pants too. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and Bottomless Pit Cave were explored in hopes of connecting to Schroeder's Pants Cave, but none did so. This effort was referred to as the Van Hornsville Project, Several years later, there were reports that a connection was finally discovered, but nothing was published. 
A permanent ladder was rigged in the pit in addition to the special iron tripod and winch placed in the pit room. Mitchell's grappling hook, specially made to assist in negotiating the upper ledge of the pit, was removed and given to Ernst Kastning. I'm still just... I'm still... He covered... Why... Here, here, let's go back for even a minute. Sure. So, so let's just say that Karis does go down there, and they lower lower him down so he's not like eight feet there, uh, you know, eight feet from the top anymore. They do lower him down somehow. Karis... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hypothesize here. So Karis goes down, and he sees him, and he's like, well, I'm nothing I can do about this. So he goes back up to the top, and he knowing knowing what I know, I'm gonna stop you there. Okay. Knowing what I know now, I don't think Karis ever made it to the bottom of the cave. I think that's a lie. Mm-hmm. I think he was with his team, which is why he only wanted his team in there. I think they said, "There's no sense in trying to do this right now. This kid's dead. He's gone. There's no rescue here. Let's get the hell out of here." They cut the rope. The body falls. Then they say, oh, God, they can't find it with the drilling of the holes because I guarantee you that Karis cut that rope and put that boy at the bottom of the pit when Lion decided to drill the holes. And so now if they were to drill those holes, right, what would they oh, find? Yeah. They yeah. would find the boy was cut or that he cut the rope, yeah. that he didn't try to retrieve him, that there was no body bag. And so Karis right here has to clean up all of this. So that mapping of the cave is basically this is what we're going to do. Yeah. We're going to create this illusion that there's a collapse. It's the only way it makes sense. It's the only reason why he doesn't retrieve the body because at this point they couldn't. They had yeah. cut him and he was at the bottom of the pit 75 feet below. When they start drilling those holes in, he says, oh my God, it's going to collapse. Everybody get out. We got to dynamite this and shut it off right now. This is unsafe. <laughs> and so what happens? They do that. Whatever way you cut this, and I'm not sure how much if you have anything else left in the story. But, Just a little bit. Um, oh, well, then why don't you go ahead and finish that? Okay. As the secret leaked through the caving organization, rumors also started to spread. No one tried to correct the prevarications that were being told. It was felt by some that these exaggerations would help to protect the cave by keeping people away. The fear of being involved in legal ramifications kept those who were involved from speaking out. In a further effort to maintain the secret, Clark Downey falsely reported to Paul Damon, editor of Caving in America, the 50-year-old history of the National Speleological Society published in 1991, that the body was later quietly removed and recovered by Lou Bicking and Jerry Frederick. Note that Bicking died on October 30th, 1966, which means they had gotten to the body already. Led by Downey, the NSS cavers at that time considered raising funds for a lasting memorial to Mitchell. However, Mitchell's parents came forth and provided funds to the NSS to endow an award in his honor. Numerous cavers also contributed to the fund. Thus, the James Mitchell Award was created for the best scientific paper presented by someone under the age of 25 at the annual NSS convention in 1970. Massachusetts caver, Boston Grotto member Peter H. Hauer was the first to receive the award. Peter had known Mitchell personally and was proud of the recognition. In 1961, Downey arranged that with George Lyon to purchase a bronze plaque to be placed on the stone at the cave entrance. Nothing happened until 1972 when Downey finally brought an engraved granite monument from Fort Plain, New York at a cost of $327.50. But it sat in Lyon's barn until November 24, 1990. Oh, wow. When a team assembled... Clark and Tim Downey, Jim and Carrie Crane 
and Monty Lion to discreetly transport it to the pit without anyone becoming suspicious of the secret. Today it remains above the entrance. It reads, in memory of James Gentry, 1942 to 1965, God rest his soul. While exploring Schroeder's Pants Cave, Jim died from exposure to the waterfall. He lies sleeping forever in the cave he loved. He is not forgotten by society or his friends. But that, of course, is not true. In 2006, the body was pulled out, and the documentary covers this. 2006. Mm-hmm. So 40, oh, well, 40 years? In June 2006, Christian Lyon, grandson of George Lyon, organized a group of cavers, including Bill Mitchell, James's brother, to re-enter the cave and retrieve Mitchell's remains. The questions being asked today are the same questions asked about Karis 41 years earlier. Cavers want to know, who is he to decide that this secret should be brought to light? Was this a request from the landowner, the locals, or relatives of Mitchell? Who cut all the red tape to accomplish this without legal ramifications? Is this another Hollywood adventure for fame and glory? Is this really a story that needs to be told? So what I was going to say, and the story is just so amazing, but I think no matter how you cut it, no pun intended, is that the there's there's questions to Karis. I mean, if you want to get to the nuts and bolts of it, there's questions of Karis, and obviously we're seeing that here. Now transition to this to our Lost Boys. That bothers me a lot, too. We based a lot of our report off of what Karis's report has been. Um, and we have no real reason to, to doubt that report, really. But now we're also hearing other stories. I mean, you want to throw in John Wingate's book again, some of the some of the articles or some of the interviews that he's done. It's, I don't know, it, I hate to say this, but it does put a shadow of doubt into Karis's report. What really... What's really going on in those caves? I mean, you almost have me convinced that the boys aren't in the caves. But here, here's the thing. This report is available. The Schroeder's Pants Cave report. I would like to read Karis's understanding of what happened. Yeah. Funny thing about Karis, in all his years in speleological society, he never makes a successful, successful recovery. In fact, he leaves caving altogether, and he becomes a pilot. Okay? He crashes two planes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it... it, it and we've seen this before with other people. How often do you have somebody, there's one, never mind, but that is that is trying to like become the one. Yeah. And they're going to do anything possible so they can become that one. Right. And I hate to say that, but it almost sounds like that's Karis. Karis is an interesting character because he, he's, a, he's a glory hound and he's a glory seeker. But he actually doesn't want to do the work. He just wants to be the person known for the work. It's a very different person. Now let's, again, go back to our May 10th, May 11th. Let's go to 1967. The one thing that does bother me now, and I still, the timeline still works that it, you know, that it shouldn't be an issue. But we talked about this earlier. The odor. Yes. In Murphy's Cave, there was an odor. It was smelled by people outside the cave that day. But it was blown off, and it was said by the the coroner and so and the undertaker, something like that, that uh, it was just either it was either sewage or it was a dead animal. Now I do question with you seeing what happened with Schroeder's uh, Schroeder's pants incident. Was it sewage? Was it or was it something else? Yeah, it, it brings everything into question that. If Karis is leading an investigation, you know, here, here are some of the people I trust. I definitely trust Tex Yoakum. Yeah. 
I trust his report. I trust that he did his job. There is even mentioned later that Tex Yoakum and a lot of other guys that were doing reports didn't necessarily respect Karras for the person that he was. And so them doing those thorough searches, like the Roadcut 79, are the boys there, like in your bonus episode? I don't know if they're there. Are they in Murphy's Cave? I mean, I don't know. Here's the thing. It brings everything into question that because you have an expert or alleged expert or a self-proclaimed expert kind of leading an entire team of 200 cavers blindly into an area that was given to you by Bramlett boys. Mm -hmm. It's not the area the boys were last seen. This still has to call into question that this is a missing persons case, not a cave rescue case. Yep. And at the same time, you have Karis trying to be this spotlight person and all the newspaper ads and everybody interviewing him, right? While you have hurt on the ground, that probably doesn't respect him either. Well, we know that Christensen, <laughs> we know that Christensen's here and he doesn't. Now, it is interesting because Christensen is the vice president of SSA, though, isn't he? Yeah. So it does question maybe there wasn't as much of a butting heads between Christensen and Karras as what we maybe assumed. Right. But we know that Hurt exists. Definitely Hurt, though. Um, but in that's Conway's group. Yeah. So that's so weird. It's, it's, it's extremely strange because when, you know, the full, spec, this full spectrum of a lot of what we've talked about today, and this is a longer episode, but it's okay to go long now because – you guys are really wanting episodes. So <laughs> right. you can break this one into two if you want. But we and we could. We actually could make this two episodes right now because we're at 60 minutes. So we probably will do that. <laughs> um, so at the, at the next time, you know, what what I want, why this, why this episode was important is because you have to establish the lead. And where really do you trust anything that happened here? This guy was never successful in recovering bodies. He covered one up, clearly covered one up. In 1965, two years later, while they're investigating Schroeder's pants, this guy's trying to rescue kids in a cave. And plus you have all... This is the perfect crime, in my opinion. Even though if this was a serial killer, if this was an abductee, if this was a molester, this is a serious, serious time. If you're a serial killer, this is the ideal situation. Mm -hmm. Because you've got, you've got people arguing, you've got people with distrust... And you got all this different misdirection going on. You at this point can do anything you want. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> how opportune is that? It, it seriously is, and it's 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 it makes you also wonder how would things be different if it wasn't Karis at the helm in nineteen sixty seven? Would would you know probably would have saw the same same end? Yeah, but you know, would have it been a better a more I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to think about. I do. And it also pulling out is, is this is interesting going back to the odor thing that we were talking about. And if you listen to the bonus episode, Greg Henderson talks about that. There's some mistrust in the mayor as well. Yes. So it does make you wonder, okay, is there other pieces of this puzzle that we're not aware of? Um, that maybe is Alcom or Alcom's razor. And that's, it's right in front of us. Yeah. It's the, you know, the simplest, right? Yep. And I, I mean, I guess I, we'll, we'll close with we want you guys in the discussion groups. I mean, listen to this episode a couple times. So from all of us here at Lost Boys of Hannibal, we hope you've enjoyed the two-part series on William Karras Schroeder's Pants Cave. I'm Frankie Cambaletta. I'm Chris Ketters. And we'll be seeing you. I practice every day to find some clever lines to say to make the meaning come true. 
and I think I'll wait until the evening gets late and I'm alone with you. The time is right, your perfume fills my head, the stars get red and oh, the night's so blue. And then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like I love you. Time is right, your perfume fills my head The stars get red and oh, the night's so blue And then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like I love you